the word this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Darrell. And it's a joy to be with you this morning. And looking forward to the picnic and to the water thing next week. Pastor Fred asked a couple weeks ago if I would be willing to be in the dunk tank. And I said, I have made it this far in my ministry without ever getting in that dunk tank. And I'm not planning now. The only way I would possibly do it, if you, Pastor Fred, could raise enough money to pay off the entire mortgage of the church, I will get in the dunk tank. So he's working very hard. He wants to do that. And uh, I just don't have faith he's going to do it. But if he did it, I would get in the dunk tank. Amen. It's going to be a great day. And I'm very pleased this morning to have some special guests here. Uh, They graduated from our Bible college, actually came here, Wayne Shouldice. Well, Wayne and his wife, Claudette, would you stand up, please? I want to welcome you uh, today. (laughs) Amen. Thank you. They came to Chicago to come to our Bible school. Wayne did in 1954, graduated in 1958. I had both Wayne and Claudette in my classes, taught them back when I was very skinny and had shiny black hair. He did not recognize me, uh, but uh, I didn't recognize him either. So uh, just great after how many years? 53 years or so they graduated from our Bible college. I just want to honor them and the fact that the college is here and uh, is still going, and we bless the name of the Lord for that. Would you bow your heads with me again? Father, we have prayed this morning for every aspect of this service. We ask your blessing upon the Word of God in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. This morning, I want to uh, speak on the church. I felt the Lord laid this in my heart that I should speak, why are we here? Maybe some of you don't realize why we just come to church, because it's habit, because it's uh, the place to go on Sunday. But why are we here? What is his plan? What is his purpose for the body of Christ? When we are born in this life, there are certain characteristics given to us at birth that determine our genes and our traits in life, they shape our development, our destiny, and they track us all through life. Scientists have discovered uh, that there is a DNA that we are born with that marks what we are and uniquely identifies us throughout our life. And our DNA is intrinsically bound up with our life, who we are, what we are, our future, and so on at our birth. I want to tell you this morning, the church was born on the day of Pentecost. We had a birth as the church came into existence, and there were certain characteristics, I might say identifying factors that should accompany us because we are part and partakers of the heavenly calling and the church of Jesus Christ. Because we're in the church, we are members of his body, the scripture says, and we are partakers of his nature. We are shaped in life, in the church, in our ministry, and in our relationship, by our relationship with God, who is our Father, our Heavenly Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body and has placed us as members in the church. I'm jumping right in this morning because I want us to see how involved and, and how great this picture is. The title of my message, you'll see it on the screen behind me, is What is the DNA of the church. That's what I'm asking this morning. What is the DNA of the church? 
And what I want to do before the message is over is give you a list of characteristics that accompany those who are part of his body and members of his church. This should be our destiny. This should be what we are. There are sermon notes on the back of your bulletin. You may want to list these characteristics down. But what I'm saying this morning is the church was born on the day of Pentecost, and therefore life was breathed into his body, which is the church. And that happened when the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit was given, and the members of the church were filled, or we use the term scripturally, baptized with his Spirit. And therefore, the Holy Spirit and his coming to abide in its members at the beginning of the church are intrinsically bound together. Now, as we start, I want to ask you some questions. That lays a premise. But I want to ask some questions as a church. Number one, what is our essence? What is our essence? As found in the book of Acts, in God's Word. Who are we, really? We come to church every Sunday, but I want us to know who we really are. What is our biblical makeup as seen in the New Testament? What is our DNA as seen in the New Testament church? Those are questions that I think are valid. And before I get into the DNA characteristics of the church, first I want to give you, I want to start with a note of victory. What is Jesus' victory, his plan for the church? Jesus' victory plan for the church. Jesus presented a plan for the church in Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus had begun his trip to Jerusalem, going to result in the crucifixion and then in the resurrection. And he reveals to his disciples how he's going to continue being present and his kingdom is going to be expanded even after his death. And Jesus declared, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, as the kingdom of death, will not be able to prevail against what I'm going to build. Can you say amen this morning? Amen. That's a little anemic, but amen. He is going to build his church. Gates of hell are not going to prevail. There is going to be victory, and I want to see that in our life. Don't you, Pastor Darrell? We want to see that happen as he was saying in prayer this morning. Jesus declared, I'll build my church. And the church... Instituted by Jesus, is here to do everything that he would have done if he'd have been here on this earth. And the interesting part about his church, history shows that it is very difficult. In fact, it's impossible to kill or stop the church because Jesus is alive. I've seen churches that have gone down to nothing. I started pastoring a church one time. They told me when I came that Ichabod had been written over the door of that church. And that means the glory has departed and that's why I came in to pastor it. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? I have been amazed at how the church seems to survive. And it's going to survive until it's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. And Jesus comes back for his bride. Hallelujah. Because God is in control of his people. I'd like to read a quote this morning. Uh, I'm going to read it because it says it better than I can. This comes from Dr. Anders Gerdman of Uppsala, Sweden. I apologize to all the Swedish people. I probably mispronounced Uppsala or Uppsala. I don't know. How do you pronounce that? The Swedish people all sit in this area over here. (laughs) Amen. Anyhow, I want to read a quote from this scholar, uh, which says, it's on the screen so you can follow it. 
It starts in the New Testament, or apostolic. Can you find that quote? Is the DNA of the church. The New Testament, the apostolic Christianity, is the DNA of the church, what I'm speaking about this morning. And like DNA, it contains uh, genetic instructions which were there right from the very beginning. Secondly, when the DNA is fully there, Jesus is truly and powerfully manifested through the global and the local church. At the same time, the DNA is there in every cell, in every believer. That DNA is planted in us, born on the day of Pentecost, from its birth, product of the Holy Spirit. The church becomes the temple, the dwelling place for God. The real, embodied, continuous presence of Jesus Christ on earth is his church. As it says in Ephesians 1.23, the church is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I want us to get in, get in and appreciate this morning for what Christ has given to us, and that is a living reality that we are participating in. Hallelujah. Pastor Darrell, in preaching and teaching in the book of Romans, told us a few weeks ago that by being born into Adam's family on earth, we inherited a human nature. We became part of a human race, and therefore we have this human nature which is sinful. But that's part of our DNA from our original ancestor, Adam, the father of us all. But then he explained from the book of Romans that there was a second Adam, Jesus Christ, amen, who was without sin. And as Jesus said to Nicodemus, here's the key, you must be born again, born a second time, have a new birth through Jesus Christ. And if we've been born again, we receive a new nature. Hallelujah. And then we live in righteousness, not in Adam's sin, but in the righteousness that Christ can implant and give to us. See, we are partakers of his nature. We are new creations in Christ Jesus, the scripture says. We have been put into this body, into the church, which is born on the day of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we are delivered from trespasses and sins and made to walk in newness of life. If you want to hear more about that, come back and hear Pastor Darrell finish the road on the book of Romans. But that established what he's been preaching about. And when we come to the day of Pentecost, I want to tell you this morning and remind you, Jesus is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, on the day of Pentecost, when it arrived and told about in Acts chapter 2, Jesus did two things in one. Two things. Number one, he began to, by pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. First of all, that day, 120 received the infilling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, what was it? Pouring out the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he began to realize the building of his church. It had begun. The church which he promised had started. This happened that day in the fire of holiness. Rivers that, that are, are baptizing people in the spirit. And I want you to notice today that the church and the Holy Spirit together, linked by the day of Pentecost, became manifested here on earth that day, which was the birthday of the church. Just like we are body and spirit in one being, so the church and the spirit are one. Let me say on one side of this coin, there are we who call ourselves charismatic, Holy Spirit people, and I want to say we ought to love and understand the church as much as we do our own experience. 
because they both came at Pentecost. But on the other side of the coin, there are people who we would call church people, who, people who really love and, and are loyal to the church. They should understand that there is an anointing and a presence and a love for the Spirit of God. Because if they're inseparable, there's no way you can, can separate the church, which started on the day of Pentecost, with the Holy Spirit, which came on the day of Pentecost. Everybody with me so far? If you're with me, wave your hand at me. Amen? Okay, that's three-fourths of you. Hallelujah. That's good. What I'm saying, the church and the Holy Spirit are intrinsically tied together by the birth of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit, which both took place in one sweeping move of God on the day of Pentecost. That's the point I want to make today, that the church, the Holy Spirit, are fundamentally, intrinsically bound Two things happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came upon the believers in the upper room. They were baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the church was born with the first sermon of the church being preached that day. And 3,000 souls were added to the church at the close of that first sermon. I put on the screen PowerPoint here the summary. The church was born with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came with the founding of the church. It just... Actually, the first time I've really put that in words. But it came to me this week. That's the way to explain it. The church was born with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came with the founding of the church. Isn't that beautiful? How that God puts all that uh, together. I just have to say, wow. That's our essence. That's who we are. That's our makeup of spirit-filled people. People part of his body, our very existence, our reason for existence. And I say it explains how we do things, why we do things, what we're doing in the spirit as God has called us to be part of his uh, body. I want to, as I said earlier, list several points that we should be seeing in the church that Jesus promised that he started on the day of Pentecost. This is really our DNA. I want to give you our DNA as we sit in the Word of God, these characteristics that are alive and real in us, His people, and therefore, it's up to us to see it come forth. Now, none of us look at ourselves and can say, here's my DNA, but if you need to be identified, they would have your DNA. You can't look at ourselves and say, this is what, you know, but yet, that's what it should be, coming forth uh, from us. Let's outline this and give these characteristics that help define the members of his body of the church. The first one that I want to give you, the first characteristic is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. I have been convinced for a long time, don't mention it too often, but I have been convinced that our message really is the gospel of the kingdom. Let me explain what I mean. Because what is the gospel of the kingdom? What is our DNA that Jesus actually came to bring our essence, the DNA of the church. The first element is that it was the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached. He began by preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Amen? John the Baptist, his forerunner, proclaimed the kingdom is coming and would arrive when he, the promised one, came. And this is what the disciples were sent out preaching and doing. Uh, Matthew 10, 7, Jesus sent his disciples out, and he told them, go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as you do it, say, 
I want you to heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely as you have received, freely give. The kingdom of heaven is coming as you see the sick healed, as you see the lepers cleansed, as you see these signs following, that that means that the kingdom of heaven has come. There's another scripture I'd like to give you from Luke chapter 2. We've read in verse 2 and 3, it talks about going to a city. Verse 9, when you go into a city, you know what it says? Heal the sick and tell them as you heal the sick, the kingdom of God has come near unto you now. When you see the power of God, when you see God at work, heal the sick, see it done, and say, that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is alive and real in the church. And we would see these signs following in Matthew Chapter 4, verse 17, as Jesus began to preach, it says the kingdom, he began to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And he closed that prayer with thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. For us in Matthew 6, 33, it says, seek first the kingdom and all these other things will take care of themselves. Don't seek all the other things and hope you're in the kingdom. Seek the kingdom and then watch God manifest and bring forth that which he wants to do. Luke 1.33 was prophesied, quoting from the prophet Isaiah years before, of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, I know that uh, oftentimes we think the kingdom is totally future. We're thinking about the time Jesus comes to rule and reign, and I do not deny there's going to be a coming of Christ. There's going to be a kingdom set up. He's going to rule and reign forever. But I am saying in the church, Jesus wants to rule and reign right now. And he said, he said, the kingdom is within you. I'm ready to heal the sick now, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, do whatever I have to do, because the kingdom of God is within you, flowing through New Testament believers. That's in Luke 17, 21. The kingdom is within you. See, this is a message of the power of the king present here working through his people. And we are told to heal the sick, to pray for the sick. We are told to experience signs and wonders by the power of the indwelling spirit. And I believe we should do that and then say, the kingdom of heaven has come close to you. This is God. God has touched you. And when you pray, see his power at work for people today, that's the kingdom of heaven coming. That's part of our DNA as spirit-filled, Bible-believing, faith-practicing believers. Even today, we need to see this and experience this today in our church, the kingdom of heaven. Second evidence of DNA in the church after it was born on the day of Pentecost is, number two, the spirit of prophecy. Now, I'm not talking here about a spiritual gift of prophecy. Uh, when someone stands up in the church and say, Thus saith the Lord, and is exercising one of the spiritual gifts as found in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. I'm talking about a spirit of prophecy, an attitude that embraces how we think, even prophetically. I think God wants us to live with direction in the kingdom of God. I don't think God wants his people to be confused just wandering around, wondering what's going to happen, no direction. We need a prophetic outlook 
I'm on a target with the Lord. He has spoken to me. God is doing something. I'm moving with God. We may not understand it all, but we have the power of God coming through us, and we see what God is doing today. There's a spirit of aliveness, a prophetic spirit coming forth. Church was born prophetically, and that spirit of prophecy, a spirit of prophecy, I believe is necessary for their church to see where to go, what to do, what to do next. I think we need to live with vision. Vision beyond the paycheck. Vision beyond our job. Beyond our job. Vision beyond our daily life. See the purpose. Be consumed with the destiny that God has for his people. That there would be a spirit of prophecy upon us in our lives. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom has come. Peter preached that very first sermon. And when the people asked why these people were speaking in tongues, what had happened to them when the Holy Spirit uh, came upon them? Peter stood up and spoke prophetically at that moment. Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, Peter spoke prophetically. They're in the line of the Old Testament prophets that have insight, identifying what is happening in the church. And Peter speaks forth in Acts 2. And the verb he uses at this time is one for a prophetic utterance being spoken forth. And he said, what has happened is this is the fulfillment of what Joel prophesied in chapter 2. He'd have to stutter around. It, it, was, it was in him by revelation. This is what Joel was saying, that he would pour out his spirit upon the flesh. Sons and daughters would prophesy that God would begin to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Jesus is prophetic, and therefore his body, the church, is intrinsically prophetic. I just believe it would be great if we would start living prophetic lives, aware of the future, aware of what God wants to do in us and through us. See, the prophetic, this visionary dimension, that's the eyes and the ears and the mouth of the body. Without this, there's no vision. There's no aliveness. There's no divine direction. But the church has always needed a prophetic word. Without the prophetic word in Antioch, there would have been no one sent out for missions in Acts 13. The Holy Ghost said, send these people out. Nor would Paul have gone into Macedonia if he had not had a prophetic vision in Acts chapter 16 of a man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And the vision then was taken into the continent of Europe. By a prophetic vision. Paul insists in 1 Corinthians 14, you may all prophesy one by one. God's vision you can, should be speaking in and through his body. The book of Revelation is called a prophecy with high authority. Revelation 1.3, it was given him to prophesy what was going to come. Same thing in Revelation 22, 18, and 19, that this came to him from above. And just as this spirit of prophecy was at the forefront of the beginning of Christianity, so it is a part of our DNA of apostolic New Testament Christianity today. And I believe we need to experience this in the church. The third characteristic, you could write on your notes. I hope you're writing this down. Third one is life in a radical koinonia. Radical meaning close fellowship, relationship, being close to uh, each other. And their closeness of fellowship, beginning in that right out of the very day of Pentecost, the early believers became a prophetic sign to those around about them. Their mutual love for one another, their radical 
lifestyle of sharing everything, their, their united worship, their, their great joy, their extremely sacrificial lifestyle demonstrated to everybody that Jesus was alive and still working in them, his love, his works. And I want to say they're here. They're here today. That's the mark of this peculiar new people. The Scripture said how they loved one another, that they were in relationships. So at its roots, right in the very beginning, the apostolic Christianity is a body of people who were one in visible love for one another and for the Lord. Third one is radical koinonia, relationship, meeting together. But we had to try to have community groups, try to get acquainted, not just come in and sit and go out, but uh, that we can share life with one another. Uh, fourth characteristic, Jesus' apostles were part of a people where worship and faith took on physical form. Worship and faith took physical form. In other words, their New Testament Christianity was not a passive, just an inward work of grace. <laughs> but their worship and their faith, and I, I think I should say their holiness, took an outward form of expression. Their spiritual life was not a hidden, non-expressive, inward thing. No, it was expressed as vibrant and happening and alive and real in which they were participating. What I'm saying is, boy, we need that today. That's going to make the difference in the church between dead or alive. Jesus is alive. The church ought to be alive because he is the head of this church. It was not a dead form. It was an alive reality. They were caring for one another. There was love. The worship included touching one another, anointing with oil, laying hands upon the sick when they prayed for each other. Two sacraments. We're talking about worship and our faith. The two sacraments of the New Testament, baptism and communion, are mentioned in Scripture from the very earliest times. In fact, you could read Acts 2, 38, where this is mentioned. But all of the, the participation that took place is explained in Acts 2, 38 to 42. These things were a part of the early church. Actually, the very center of their Sunday worship was the breaking of bread. It wasn't just a communion service. It was a remembrance of his body, but it was a remembrance of the resurrected Lord who is alive. It became a time of giving of life, of forgiveness, of healing. At the same time, it was a manifestation of the unity of the body as they all sat at the table uh, together, the Lord's table, in remembrance of him. Their worship and their faith, their holiness, Every aspect of your life was alive in Jesus Christ, and I think it should be alive for us today. Number five, another characteristic of the DNA of the church was the signs and wonders that accompanied their very existence. I like to see the DNA of the church be alive with signs and wonders. I rejoice every week. We pray over the prayer requests, men's prayer, and staff meeting, and, and probably one-third to, to more are praises of what God has done putting things together, healing people, touching them. And, and then there's two or three pages of requests that God would do that. But we believe that signs and wonders should follow. Jesus' ministry, signs and wonders, were their evidence that he was the Messiah. They are signs of the kingdom, are showing that the church is a true body of an alive Christ. 
See, when John the Baptist asked if Jesus was, was the Messiah, everyone on the screen up here, the answer came back in Luke 7.22, tell John the Baptist what? The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised alive, and the good news is being preached to the poor. That was a sign to John the Baptist that the king was here. In Acts, the flow of miracles continues as God was confirming his message to the people. In the early churches, the gifts of the Spirit, the, the supernatural, the miracles were, were standard practice. They were expected, and they happened because faith was there, and they saw signs and wonders in the early church. I want to say that Jesus was healing and delivering people. Yes, it was through his disciples but he was acting from heaven. Jesus is not dead. He's not sleeping up on the throne. He is actively touching people as we touch heaven. And the same things happen where the body of Christ is in existence with his DNA alive and present that we are seeing his power at work. And we're part of that kingdom. Hallelujah. Anybody say amen? amen. Hallelujah this morning. Glory. The sixth characteristic is loving others. Look at Acts 1, 40, uh, 46, 47. I think it's on the PowerPoint. And all the believers met together. Notice the love here. In one place, they shared everything they had. It wasn't selfish. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of the people. As I already noticed in an earlier point, perhaps the biggest miracle was the love that the early church shared for one another. So that's not a characteristic you find out in the field, in the world today. Not a characteristic you find even in some families today. But in the family of God, if we're going to have the DNA of the new covenant, we need to have that spirit of rejoicing, sharing our meals together. I won't take a minute to reemphasize, come together for a picnic next Sunday, but that's part of loving each other. Amen? I thank God for, for his goodness. Uh, having me, uh, let me just say, the work of providing food in the Jerusalem church was so large in a chapter, in a book of Acts, chapter 6, it got so big, they had to appoint deacons to handle it. And, and the result was not only preaching, but it was the mercy work of the, of the church. I'm thankful that God's laid that in the heart of people in our church. Uh, you mentioned that Liz's, uh, what, mother-in-law? Mother-in-law passed away this week. I don't know if you know it, but Liz's car was out in front this morning. She makes the rounds, and she has a route, and she brings your food that's available for people after the service. She brings in the bread. Every Friday morning, there's a food pantry that uh, is providing vegetables and, and bread and different things that God is providing at no charge for people. I think that we need to demonstrate that. Yesterday, uh, I was upstairs, and, and uh, a couple of ladies came up there. And you could tell they were needy ladies. Somebody had told them, go up and see the pastor upstairs. And they said, we heard this church gives out food, uh, gives out clothing. Is that right? My little baby needs some clothes. And I set up an appointment. I said, you'll be here Friday morning. Come, and we'll have food for you. She said, you have free food? For us? I said, come Friday morning, 9 o'clock, ask for Jody. She'll get you food, and then she'll take you to get some clothes for the babies. 
They could not believe it as they walked out. See, that's what the church ought to be doing. The result was not only by preaching, but by the mercy that they showed. And it says of the early church, Acts 6, they, the word of God increased, and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly, and even a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. The practical love, mercy shown by the church, opened the heart of its people, and that is a vital part of the DNA of the early New Testament church. That's why I want to see that in our church today. Amen? Uh, The seventh characteristic I want to talk about is leadership. Leadership that is called and ordained and set in office by the Lord. See, this was a pattern in the Old Testament. Moses on down, God set a pattern. When Jesus came, he followed, he, he called 12 disciples, established their calling and their ministry. Jesus put leaders into office in his church who are carrying out their responsibility for the body of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, that God has set first apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers, on down the line. God has set these in the church. You're familiar with the verse we quote often, Ephesians 4, 11, that after the resurrection, Jesus ascended upon high, and from his heavenly throne, it says he gave gifts. This is Ephesians 4, 11. He gave the gifts to the church. Uh, some were to be apostles, some to be prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Notice it was Jesus who still called and appointed these leadership gifts for the church. It was not instituted by man, not decided by a committee, not a denomination appointed by man, but it was Jesus who gave leadership gifts to the church. And these offices are established by Christ himself. You say, he isn't here anymore. He's still alive. He ascended in heaven. And from the right hand of the Father, it is he who gives pastors and teachers and offices to the church. This includes everybody that has a ministry. The deacons were looked out, but they were appointed uh, by the, the, the elders who had been, uh, the, the apostles, the elders who had been chosen by the Lord. Bible talks about deaconesses, ladies that had ministry. Talks about servers in the Bible, body of Christ. It talks about helpers, givers, all the gifts listed in Romans chapter 12. Then I want you to notice, you say, how does this propagate itself? Jesus did it one time. No, then the apostles uh, were ordained, and then they ordained and put others into office. Paul lays hands upon Timothy, writes a book for Timothy to lay hands on other leaders. This is part of New Testament Christianity. Godly leaders calling, being set aside by the Lord himself. That's what we do every every time we send somebody out in the ministry. Every time we send somebody in the mission field, what do we do? We call them to the altar and we lay hands upon them. Invite other people to come so that we're all imparting unto them. And the purpose of all of this was to build up the body. Apostolic authority is not an end to itself. It's there to equip others. Like an Ananias, he wasn't doing anything for himself, but he obeyed when God said, go lay hands on Paul. And what did Paul do? Because an Ananias imparted to him. Uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 1, talks about a lady named Phoebe. You're going to hear in the scripture, but she was doing the work of a deacon. These are people for their ministry, and so the church ministry goes on and on as the Lord directs. Christianity has its ministers, as we're established here in the church, called, set aside down through the ages. But what is this for? Ephesians 4, it is to equip saints for the service to the body of Christ. That's part of our DNA 
what we had when our church was established. That's the way that we're going to operate and that we might have saints built up by the ministry of those God has sent to be a service to the body of Christ. I'm hurrying through these this morning, but you can meditate on them if they're writing them down. Number eight is mighty prayer, which was an identifying factor in the early church. And it should definitely be a part of our DNA as Christians in the body of Christ. It says in Acts 2.42, the early church also gave constant attention to prayer. It's on the screen there. Constant attention to prayer. It was a lifestyle of apostolic New Testament Christianity. Jesus is a high priest, but what is he doing? Making intercession. Jesus himself is still praying constantly. If you notice the epistles, Paul, the others wrote, how many times they said we are praying unceasingly for this church, making mention of you in our prayers. When persecuted, the early acts was summoned to seek God, and such mighty prayer went forth in Acts 4, rising up to God, that the whole house began to shake, Acts 4.31. There was so much power that actually the house began to shake as people began to pray. But it's even more, a life of prayer, praying all the time, this intimate, mystical fellowship with God. I use the word mystical because we're talking about otherworldly. We're talking about meeting with God. God is a spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and truth. And it really means that we have entered into a deep relationship with a God that we can't see, but it can be experienced. We can know him. We can feel. We can be in his presence. Hallelujah. This kind of deeper dimension of prayer are first seen in Jesus himself as he is praying on behalf of the church in that great uh, high priestly prayer of John 17, where he had intercession in prayer. And in John 17, he is praying for a unity between the Trinity in heaven and the believers. Lord, make them one just like I am one with you, you're one with me. Could you have that same unity, that same spirit between our, our believers? And he goes on and he, he, he prays. He envisions a divine partaking of nature, divine nature for us. I think it's wonderful that as he prayed, that uh, he began to pray for us, for the believers ourselves, that we would be one in the spirit. Paul prayed so fervently that it says he was taken up to the third heaven, saw things unlawful. There is such an excitement in prayer that we can move into a new nature. It's not a matter of quoting words. Peter envisioned us, as I said, becoming a partaker of divine nature in 1 Peter chapter 4. From the birth of the church until this very day, mighty prayer. I'll, put, I'll say even say mystical prayer that puts us in touch with God himself, going up from the body to the Father. That's an essential part of a DNA of the, low, of the New Testament church. Number nine, mission and uh, martyrdom, I'll put on the board, is a part of our DNA. It comes from the Greek word martyria. And we think of that, we get the word martyr uh, from that, which comes from our word mission. If you want to Detailed description of the, of the Greek on this. You talk to Pastor Darrell because I don't know any, any Greek much. I just, we always said, I know a little Greek that runs a restaurant down in the corner, but he knows more Greek than I do. Never, I won't go into that anymore. Um, what about mission and martyrdom? Christianity from the very beginning was also a sacrificial testimony to Christ in the midst of persecution. 
Pastor Darrell referred to this morning in prayer time about a sacrifice of seeking God. See, martyrdom is more than just an experience. If martyrdom, say there's a gift of martyrdom, that's a gift you only exercise once. Right? But the spirit of martyrdom, I think Paul had the spirit of martyrdom. He said, I don't count my life dearer to me. Hey, you want to beat me for the gospel? Go ahead. I've been beaten before. Shipwreck, I can be shipwrecked. Anything, whatever, I don't call my life, count my life dear. Whatever I go through, it's for the sake of the gospel. And I call everything else, I call everything else worthless compared to being what God wants me to be. It's not a one-term uh, a thing. It's a talking about the quality of our commitment, which has a power not to count our lives dear in itself. Speaking of our dedication, what we're doing, we're saying, hey, I'm living for God no matter what. No matter what it costs me. We're committed even if it costs us our life. We don't know what it's going to cost. Paul tells how before his conversion, he did what? He tortured and killed Christians. He said, I'm a debtor. I have to pay back what I did to other people. The apostolic Christianity was born in strong persecution. Chapter 7 of the book of Acts, Stephen was the first martyr, gave his life, and gave all the 12 disciples except for John the Beloved. He was on the Isle of Patmos persecuted. They were all martyrs, even as was Paul. That's why I put on the board what Tertullian stated. The blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. As the blood begins to flow from Christians, it added more people to come because they saw what people were doing. Their mission was marked by martyria, and we get our word, as I said, martyr from that. But because of this dedication, because of this commitment, the early commission of the church... The church began to grow, was successful. And the DNA of the New Testament church, I want to say, is not obsolete. It's not non-existent in modern times. We need to pray, cultivate it, pray for the sick, see God do it, have a spirit of prophecy, preach the gospel of the kingdom, uh, walk in the, in the leadership that God has given that we might be what he wants us to do. Before I leave this part of mission and and martyrdom. Maybe you don't know here in America as much. We're not as much as risk, but our, con- our commitment should be no less real than those who are giving uh, their life. We don't know what Christians in other countries, Pastor Dale referred to this morning, that have counted the cost, and they're willing to go out for the cause of Christ in mission anyhow. Martyrdom is still a very strong reality for a lot of Christians in many places. They don't count their lives dear unto themselves, it says in Scripture. As you know, I go to India about three times a year and teach in the seminary and the Bible college there. Chris Ullman was with me this last June. He can verify what I, what I say, verify what I say. Young people that are in those classes who have come to give their life to study for the Lord, they know the cost uh, of their call. When they come, they know what it might cost them. When the burning of churches and the murder of Christians and, and running pastors out of their home was taking place in the Indian state of Orissa a number of years ago, I had students tell me that they were going to go back to Orissa and evangelize in a place where they might get killed. year before last, three of our graduates, they said in my classes, they went out to a village to evangelize. Only two of them returned because they were chased out of town. So others went out to search for the missing student 
I think I mentioned to the church, he was found in the bottom of a well where he'd been thrown to die, which he did die for the sake of the gospel. That was just two years ago. This past year, graduating, uh, a graduate from our class last year from classes that I taught, he was killed as a martyr for witnessing of the gospel. When we had the, the, the next graduation this year, the whole graduation was dedicated to the memory and the sacrifice of that young man who gave his life. That's just one country where I've been. There are many more that are more graphic and more widespread where whole villages have, have been wiped out. What I'm saying is this bold and uncompromising witness to Christ was necessary to break through a seemingly seemingly hopeless society, and that's the mark of consecration of a New Testament apostolic ministry. It's an attitude, this willingness to give everything, not just for an act, but an attitude. And we may not be called upon to face that severe a cause for our testimony, but I tell you, many of those that we support every month in our missions as we had Missionary Sunday today, we send out that money. Those who are on the field, I want to tell you that many of them face that possibility every month. And their dedication to the cause has sent them to the field. And I want to say our dedication to the cause should be no less. We just live in a great land, but it should be no less. And even though we don't see in our nation, um, I'm just saying we should be no more less dedicated. We should not compromise at all. We need that spirit. I think it should be a mark of our DNA that we wholly follow and believe in the Lord whom they killed, and he gave his life. We can do no less than live for God. Finally, my time's gone, and uh, let me give you the last mark of DNA that I'll refer to this morning, and that is the constant expectation of Jesus Christ coming back for his bride. In the early church, there was a constant expectation of the second coming of Christ that was dominating apostolic uh, Christianity. Jesus talked about it, Matthew 24. I, I put some scriptures up there. You can just write those down, look at them later. Uh, Peter, Paul, John urged to know, urged us to know that the Lord will come as a thief in the night at a time when nobody would expect it, perhaps even now, that we might. Be ready for his coming back. This expectation was constantly there in the early church. I can remember as a young man, before I went to Bible school, there were so many messages on the second coming. And I want us to say this morning, let's not lose the expectation and the truth that Jesus will soon return for his bride. As I said, the expectation was constantly there in the early church and was a crucial part of the early apostolic Christianity. Conclusion this morning been reported, studies have been done, that the DNA of the apostolic church was very evident in the first three centuries of the early church, because that was the era of persecution. They lived like what I've been preaching. There was a bold preaching of the full gospel of Christ, including the gospel about healing. Uh, there were successful battles with demons and, and with the enemy, the gospel of love and, and caring for one another where the apostolic doctrine, baptism, Lord's Supper, the fellowship of believers, holy lifestyle, it was meaningful. It was important. It was their life. According to one, I'll say, liberal scholar, definitely not Pentecostal, not spirit-filled, he described the early church as this, quote, he said, a liberal scholar said, 
The early church was a religion of spirit and power, of moral earnestness and holiness. A religion was successful because of its scripture and because of the bold martyra, its witness, even martyrdom spirit of the common people like soldiers, businessmen, slaves, end quote. What was he saying? He just recognized uh, from his study even that, as I read, the moral earnestness, the holiness, the spirit of power, it began to come through them in a bold saying, I'm willing to give my life, and it caused people to be a part of it. The purpose of my message this morning is not merely historical, but to search for the type of Christianity that will be able to meet the challenges of this time in which we live. History shows that apostolic Christianity is not necessarily just a happy time, uh, but it has a DNA that has always been present for the church. And I want to inspire you with that this morning, that will capitalize on a study those 10 pay, pay, uh, points over because when it is fully developed in an operation Christ is truly present and represented in the church so what hinders the fullness from being manifested today I want to tell you the search for the DNA of the early church is not academic I believe it's essential to what the church of Jesus Christ the body of Christ ought to be today and Jesus does have power that will overcome the vice that's in our world. He can overcome the power of the enemy as we were singing this morning. Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not be able to, to, to overpower it. I like that free translation. Powers of hell will not overpower because he's building the church. And, and by the way, I just want to make it clear I'm not talking about movements or ministers or programs, or gimmicks, but the overall church and the blessing that there is in that church. What should we do? How do we do this? What's the future of Christianity? I'm saying this morning we must have the conviction that a New Testament apostolic Christianity is our foundation and is also the future of Christianity. It's the kind of church that he's coming back for, and I want to see a glorious church even in our church that we might be full of expectancy and faith and believing. We, we just can't sit around and talk about the good old days or maintaining till Jesus comes and then live secular lives in a modern world, kind of adjusting our Christianity to the times. But what we must do is to seek God for a fresh outpouring of his presence over the entire body of Christ and see a return in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our actions, in our lifestyles to the DNA that we have from the birth of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit even down to today. We need to become the church as we see it in the New Testament. It's our calling. It is our heritage, the destiny of his church that needs to be born anew in us, his people. You know, I will ask, what must we do? I think we have to address any weakness in our approach to God of what he intended us to be. And through this, see the body of Christ as he sees it. See it built up, strengthened in our midst. Until as we read and put it on the screen, Ephesians 4, 13, till we all attain to the unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of Christ. 
Chloe, could you read that aloud with me as Pastor Darrell comes? Let's read it from Ephesians 4.13 as a conclusion of this message. Ready? Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. Amen. What a good word this morning. There was so much meat in each of those points. I mean, you can make each of those points a sermon. I mean, it was, that, that is good. And that is who we are. Sometimes you need somebody just to look you in the face and say, that's who you are. And that's who we are in Christ. And that's the church we long to be. And let's, uh, let's persevere in that together. And maybe you're here today and and uh, you just kind of came into church, and, and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you want to be a part of something like this, we're all welcome into his family. We are all welcome into his church. And so today, if you want to give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, if you want to be a part of his family, part of his church, they just look inside your bulletin. There's a prayer for there in there that you can pray. It explains a little bit more about that. And then just come up and grab a bag after church and just take that with you. It's a Bible, a lot of different information about being a, a Christian, a follower of Christ, part of being his church, and, and uh, you can be a part of that. And, and again, I'm excited about what God has in store for our church in the coming weeks and months and years until he comes back for his bride. Would you stand for the blessing of the Lord this morning? Pastor Merrill will be here uh, immediately following the service, and uh, uh, he'll pray with you. And, and if, you, if there's anything you need, uh, don't hesitate to come down for prayer this morning, and, and you can be prayed for. And uh, I got a note from Pastor Fred before uh, he left for the golf outing, and, uh, and um, Liz Sherry's mother-in-law is going to, the funeral is tomorrow, and there's going to be visitation right here at the church between 3 and 9 p.m. So anytime between 3 and 9 p.m. here at the church. And the service is at 7.30 here at the church as well. And so if you want to stand with the family there, uh, we know that you're going to do that in prayer. But if you'd like to be here and with your physical presence, we'll be here at the church between 3 and, uh, and 9. So we're praying for you. And, uh, well, anyway, we're just going to receive the blessing of the Lord and uh, go in his grace and peace. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. God, I thank you for that blessing that rests upon your church, God. Lord, today we realize that we are a part of you. We don't belong to this world. We belong to you. We have your DNA inside of us. May we walk in that blessing. May we walk in that favor. May we walk in that protection. May we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that filled the apostles, fill us today. And God, I pray that we would go in that strength and that power, keep us safe and strong until we can gather together again and worship you as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go today. Fellowship with one another. I'll see many of you at the golf outing for Mission Possible. And Pastor Merrill's here to pray with anyone that needs special prayer.